There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy, and I am the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. Well, we have a good week going here. We have a wonderful afternoon so far. And I want to bring your attention to Genesis chapter 22. I want to start by reading verses 1 through 14. because I know most of you out there are probably in your car driving. And so I will read this out loud for you. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I, will, and, I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. So when we come to this story about Abraham and Isaac, there's something here about God that is, well, it's hard to understand. There's something about God here that just doesn't seem to make sense. In fact, if you don't know the rest of the story, it would seem irrational. But let's 
let's revisit a few things first. Years before Isaac's born, God makes a promise to Abraham. He said Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. But of course, in order to do that, Abraham needed to have a son, which he didn't have one yet. But the day came when God came to Abraham in Genesis 17, and he said to him there, For as, as for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. But still there was another small problem. Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah 90 years old. Even in that day, people didn't have kids when they got that old. It just didn't happen. But God had made Abraham a promise. And so they did have a son, even though they, uh, they were too old to have one. Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And so we fast forward tw about 25 years or so. Isaac's grown into that young man. He is uh, the apple of Abraham's eye. He is a, a great kid, and Abraham loves him deeply. But then God stops in for that visit, that passage we just read. <clears throat> excuse me. That passage we just read there in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. And Abraham does it. He offers up his son. He passes the test. And, and that's pretty amazing that after hearing that from the Lord, go and sacrifice your son to me, he just gets up and does it. No worries, doesn't question it. He just does it. And of course, at the last minute, when he's about to take the life of his son, God steps in and stops him. There in verse 12. Now, later on, in Hebrews chapter 11, God praises Abraham again for his willingness to do as he was asked. In fact, in that passage, uh, Hebrews 11, 17 and 19, uh, it, it tells us that Abraham knew or, or, or was, had, had faith that God was going to hold his promise. That you know, even if his son was to die, somehow God was going to bring his son back from the dead. He knew it. He had faith because he had renewed his mind. Abraham had transformed his way of thinking over the years of seeing that God is faithful and true. That he was, had no doubt about it. And all through scripture, Abraham is repeatedly praised as an example of faith. Uh, in fact, because of his faith, God, uh, 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 or Paul writes in Romans, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. But, there's one small fly in the ointment here. There's, there's a little thing that just is kind of odd. And it, it always struck me as odd as a child when I would read this passage. When I was a teenager. When I would read this passage that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. In my mind, I thought, well, God, God doesn't do that. You know, because passages like Deuteronomy 18.10, where God declares, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. In other words, he's saying, don't sacrifice your sons to those pagan gods. In Leviticus 18.21, God warns his people, You shall not give any of your offspring over to uh, over to them, or I'm sorry, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your, your God, I am the Lord. 
repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, God condemned this kind of behavior. In fact, at one point, God said this about the whole nation of Israel in 2 Kings 17. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. Over and over and over again, God cries out, Don't go sacrificing your children to the pagans. That profanes my name. You'll provoke me to anger. Don't do it. So what's going on here in Genesis chapter 22? How, How could God, who hates child sacrifice so much, how could he ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? Now you might think, well, he was never going to let him do it anyway. Well, true, but he asked should he have done that? Well, I mean, I, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't say that. Don't We shouldn't question the motives of God. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is there's more to the story. As Paul Harvey would say at the end of the Genesis 22, he would say, now for the rest of the story. It doesn't end there for us. There's more for us to see. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, God paints pictures for us. And the picture he paints, he, he, he's painting here, are images of who the Messiah is going to be and pictures of what the Messiah would do when he came. You, you see these uh, pictures painted throughout the law, uh, all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, when you open up the prophets, it's over and over again. You see them pointing to the coming Messiah. Even when D- David, David, when Daniel was uh, celebrating that the, the 70 years is almost over, we get to go home and the angel comes to, to minister to him, and he says, Look, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're excited about that, but there's something greater coming. This is the passage about the 70 weeks. I believe that's pointing to the Christ. And that's in all of the prophets, almost all of them, they always say, Look, the, the uh, captivity is almost over. Be happy, but be even more joyous over what's coming over the horizon. The coming of the Messiah. Everything is pointing to that. And that picture, I believe, is being painted here for us in Genesis chapter 22 as well. Think about this. First, how many sons does Abraham and Sarah have? One. Just the one son. Isaac. Now, God has one son. In fact, it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now we go a little bit further. Both boys, Isaac and Jesus, were supposed to be sacrificed. Genesis 22.2 Take your your son, uh, Abraham, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and I want you to go over there and sacrifice him. Both of them, both Isaac and Jesus, were called to die. But there's more. How many days does Isaac journey to the mountain of his sacrifice? Three days. Three. And then from the point of Jesus on the cross, being buried in his resurrection is three days. Interesting. But there's more. Who carried the wood up to the mountain to be used in his sacrifice? Isaac did. The cross was laid on the shoulder of Jesus, and he 
carry that most of the way to uh, Golgotha, the place of the skull. But of course, Isaac, he wasn't sacrificed, was he? When Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And God will supply the sacrifice for us too. He supplied the substitute for Isaac, and that substitute died in his place. And so God supplied the substitute for us as well. And Jesus died in our place for our sins as well. But then there's also the place Isaac was to be sacrificed. The place was the the region of Moriah. And then God said that when you get there, I'll tell you where to go. Now that's interesting. Do you ever remember hearing about uh, a mountain in the region of Moriah before? Let me turn in my Bible. I want to read it to you specifically to 2 Chronicles. We don't turn to the Chronicles too often. They come after First and Second Kings, right? Yeah, Second Chronicles chapter three, and Second Chronicles comes after First Chronicles. In case you didn't know, and in chapter three, verse one, the passage reads as thus: Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. That's going to be the temple there in Jerusalem. Solomon begins to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on. Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jezebite. Now, that's pretty amazing. And so we come back here to Genesis chapter 22, and uh, Abraham's told to take Isaac to the region of Moriah, and God would tell him where to take him for the sacrifice. And because of how everything seems to be adding up here, I it doesn't... I believe that God probably told Abraham to go to the place of the skull. Golgotha, where Jesus would be put up on the cross. I bet you it's right there. Where he built that that altar. Where he was going to sacrifice his son. You think that was an accident? I don't. And it doesn't end there. Hebrews 11.19, God tells us that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead, right? Isaac was on the edge of death. The knife was posed to be plunged in him, and he was just moments away from leaving this world. And Abraham was about to kill his only son. Why? Because Abraham reasoned that God would, uh, had made him a promise. God had promised that Abraham would become the father of many nations. His son would be the beginning of that. And he was convinced, Abraham was convinced, that God would not lie to him. And so, even if Isaac died, God would bring him back from the dead. And in a sense, that's exactly what happened. Abraham received his son back from death, and now he lived. By contrast, Jesus did die. But he didn't stay dead, did he? He came back from the dead. And Jesus did that so that we would know that because he now lives, so will we. It was the promise given to us. And that promise was driven home by the one physical deed that God requires of us to become Christians. And that's 
baptism. I want to turn over to Romans chapter 6, looking at verses 3 through 5. Let me get my New Testament open up here. Romans chapter 6, verses 3, 4, and 5 reads, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that not only do you have to hear the gospel message, but once you hear it, you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So you, you believe and you, you make that confession, and then you repent of your sins. So hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. And then you walk in... in, in I think everyone within the Christian realm uh, agrees with us. You walk the faithful Christian life. I know a lot of people don't think you need to be baptized, but that's how you get into Christ. In fact, you know what? I want to go on a little excursus here. I know a lot of folks out there listening probably don't uh, 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 subscribe to the idea that baptism is necessary for salvation. And that's because... That's, they see it as works, and you can't earn your way into heaven, and that's true. You don't earn your way into heaven, but we still have to do the things God tells us to do. Like when Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, all those who hear these words of mine and acts on them can be compared to a man who builds his house on the rock. In other words, if you don't act on his words, then you're a foolish man. You've got to do what Christ tells you. And it's not the act of baptism that saves you. I believe that God gave us that, just like he told Joshua and the Israelites to build that memorial after they crossed the Jordan, going into the promised land. Build that memorial so that your children, when they see this, they may ask, why is this memorial here? And you can remind them, tell them what all that God has done for you. It is a memorial for you to remember what happened? And baptism is the same. It is that sim- uh, symbol that we are di- we were going to die to self spiritually, and we're going to be we're going to live for Christ. And it's also a point I can go back to you and point at and say, "Here's my memorial. That's when it started. When I decided to give my life to Christ, and now I started at that point to live a new life. And there's more to it. It doesn't just end there. And there's nothing else I have to do. Later on in Romans, Romans chapter twelve. Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And in this passage, he's telling us, here's everything you do. Now that you're a a part of the body of Christ, 
Here's what you keep on doing. And he goes on in verses uh, 3 uh, through 8 to give you some examples of the things you do to renew the mind. So let, let, let's break down, though, verses 1, 2, and 3. When you say that word mercy there, by the mercies of God, that's not the uh, holding back that which you deserve, as we typically see. Here, it's more about the idea of compassion, showing sympathy. And there's three adjectives describing the method of sacrifice here that he, he goes on to say there in verse, in verse 1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So you get the living. That's a kind of sacrifice that we offer in our body. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices that had to die to, ful to fulfill the commitment of, of our giving to God, this one that Paul talks about here continues to live. It's a living sacrifice. And so the commitment to God in this sacrifice is not fulfilled until the one giving it can no longer offer that sacrifice. It's also holy in that it is set apart completely belonging to God. Our new life of transformation that we need to see that our physical self, our body, now belongs totally and completely to the Lord our God. It's living it's holy, and it's acceptable. And it comes from a Greek word that means well-pleasing. It makes me think about uh, Numbers 15 where it says that the sacrifices were an aroma pleasing to the Lord. When our body's sacrifice is offered correctly as God desires, he is pleased and he accepts it. And the sacrifice of your physical body is your spiritual service of worship, a worship that honors God by giving him what he truly wants, as opposed to the a depraved worship offered by human beings under the power of sin. We don't want that. And then verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. The world being this, this world that we live in, uh, 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 people who have no God reference and they are not centered upon the things of God, or even those who think they're doing uh, uh, religious work, yet it's erroneously conceived. And only giving God lip service. Conformed. Conformed is like when you you have those, um, what do you call it? The uh, When you pour like concrete into a form. And it conforms to the shape of the form. And, and it, it comes out the same every time. Paul's command is for a change in the way we once lived, uh, which was in the world, to a new way of living. We are to be transformed metamorphosis, the caterpillar into the butterfly. We were to no longer see life like we used to as we were when we were a caterpillar. Now we're going to be transformed and we're going to see life from the perspective that God sees it. Completely different. Completely different from the way we used to live. And that requires us to have a renewing of the mind. This is how the transformation is accomplished. Mind has to do with the way we think and reason to conclusions. And if we are now led by a new spirit, a new way of thinking, which is Christ's way, then we have a new mind and heart that should guide us. And yet this renewing, like transformation, is a continual, lifelong process. It is a living sacrifice that we're giving over to the Lord. And we do all this that we may prove what the will of God is. This has to do with the actions we take based upon our new way of thinking. 
The word prove has to do with the testing something out in order to demonstrate its workability. And renewing the mind gives us a change of thinking, new insight, so that we see things differently. But the power for change is unrealized unless we put that new thinking into practice. So our purpose is to demonstrate that God's way works. Whenever we implement what God says, His thinking in our life, we prove or we demonstrate that it works. If we are to change, if we are to be transformed, we must bring God's thinking into our minds and then act upon that thinking to prove and to demonstrate that it really accomplishes what God says. And you see, that's what Abraham was doing. He was proving God's way works. He knows it. He knew it so well. His, the renewal of his mind was so strong that when God said, Offer me your son, no problem, Lord, I'll do it. Because I know your way works, and I know that you hold to your promises always, 100%. And so we, if we are truly going to be Christians, disciples of Christ, if we really heard the gospel, we believed it, if we truly confess that Jesus is our Lord and our Master, and we've repented of our sins, if we were baptized into Christ and raised up in that new life, that, can, that new life that we're now living needs to be a constant transformation, a constant renewing of the mind to die to self, the old way of thinking, to put that to rest and truly take on the mind and heart of Christ. And it begins in the mind. You've got to get into the Word. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And in that, Peter is showing us, here's how the renewal starts. You need to apply diligence to these things. And if you're growing in these things, you will not be unfruitful. You will grow. You will mature the way God intends you. But you must redeem the time, right? Make the most of every opportunity. Get in the word. And don't let this world cast you into its shadow, taking you out of Christ. Well, we're out of time. Thank you for this. I hope you study this out. And I hope it is encouraging to you always as we continue our walk in the Lord. Sinning up to sweep away till shut on the better day. Ring it out, ring it out, ring it out, ring it out. Till the sinful world be one for Jehovah's mighty son. Ring it out, ring it out, ring it out.